This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Monday was our first opportunity to unpack the governing Ford PC's measures to supposedly stabilize the healthcare system. We know that the biggest backlog is likely caused by patients who no longer need to be in hospital but don't have a suitable nursing home spot. There are about 2,500 such patients currently in acute care beds in hospital. The Tories are implementing a law to allow hospital doctors to temporarily send these patients to homes, long-term care homes not necessarily of their own choosing. But long-term care minister Paul Calandra insists people will not be forced to leave, although he admits they will be charged if they stay in hospital. Libby spoke with our Zoomer squad about the new legislation to get their perspectives. Peter Mugridge is senior editor at Zoomer magazine. Bill Van Gorder is chief operating officer and chief policy officer of CARP. And David Kravitz is chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. I don't understand, you pointed out to me before we went on the air, I don't understand why it needs a regulation if they were having these conversations all along. I do know that when you go on a waiting list, you have picked five long-term care homes that you're waiting for. You've listed them, one, two, three, four, five. That's your list. If you're in a hospital, there's to put in as proportion, there's 1,200 people uh, in alternate care beds in the hospital waiting at any given moment. They're proposing to reduce that to about 900 or 300 people. 250 doesn't seem that huge a number to talk to amicably and maybe go to home that was number six on your list that isn't that far away. I really don't think there's much chance of them being able to force somebody in Toronto to move to a long-term care home in, in Sudbury. But maybe you're in Oakville and you'll, you'd rather be in a home in Mississauga than in a hospital bed. It doesn't seem that uh, nefarious to me, but uh, I don't know why they need regulation. Bill, do you have a view? Well, I certainly think this, uh, you know, this is a real conundrum for the people who want change now in what the government's doing in terms of the way it's treating our older citizens in uh, hospitals and in long-term care. You know, the on the pro side, it's action now with immediate results. They're actually doing something and not just planning something that's going to happen four years from now. The problem, though, is once again, it's not, uh, it's, it's system-centered and not patient-centered, entirely looking at the convenience of the uh, system. So in the case of the, the regulations, they've always played fast and loose with regulations. You recall during uh, the time you just mentioned with, with COVID, although there were regulations, the long-term care homes and hospitals still 
still had uh, could make decisions that were outside of the uh, regulations. Also, uh, you know, with, when you're when you're dealing with the system, when an, especially an older person and has someone like a, like a discharge coordinator or doctors tell them that they should do something, there's a real hesitancy to go against the uh, against the recommendations. So this is. Uh, uh, you know, it's very prescriptive and not keeping in mind what's really the best uh, uh, in, in the best uh, for the patient and the and the wishes of the patient and their family. Peter, let me just go over some of the comments I've heard about from people that I respect a great deal. Last week, just when this came down, and granted, probably before they saw regulations, both Samir Sinha and Donna Duncan, who runs the Association for for For-Profit Long-Term Care, were very hesitant about the way this treated our elders. I have experience with that. Uh, Anyone who's looked after an elderly person will have experience of, you know, them being admitted to hospital, their issue clearing up, and then they're in hospital because there's nowhere to go. They're not well enough to go home. They haven't got into a long-term care home. You know, they don't need the rehab hospital. So they're, they're sort of in limbo, and they do take up a lot of beds, and it's not the greatest environment. You know, people are coming in and out of the rooms all the time. Alarms are going off. You know, just general the general chaos of a hospital isn't great for someone who doesn't need to be there. And so, in one hand, you can see, yes, let's get them to a better place out of that hospital as soon as possible and into somewhere that's more reasonably um, sane, you know. But but the, the flip side is, it's, can we force them in? And I think this legislation, although it says consent, I, I think that's what the situation is if it's an emergency, if beds need to be freed up, I think it's just going to be a matter of moving the patient out. Peter Mogridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, chief operating and chief policy officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president at Zoomer Media. This is Zoomer Radio's best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Now to a health care measure that is being received positively. The Ford PCs are planning to expand their program to allow paramedics to take patients to other places other than hospital emergency wards. This could include mental health facilities, and it would also allow them to treat patients on site, often at home, in an effort to alleviate the pressures on hospitals as they face staffing shortages. A pilot program was launched in 2020, with over 40 municipalities taking part. According to statistics, patients received access to care 17 times more quickly, and 94% of patients did not have to get treatment in the ER in the days that followed. Libby was joined on Monday by paramedic Mike Merriman, EMS chair for CUPE Local 416. I'm entirely supportive of uh, any uh, initiatives that take the pressures off the system. But, uh, again, as you mentioned, these will alleviate some of the pressures. Potentially, it leave some of the pressures off of the hospital ERs, but they're obviously not going to leave the uh, alleviate the pressures on the paramedics who are extremely understaffed. And, you know, to facilitate any of these programs, like community paramedicine, you actually have to take paramedics out of the 911 uh, pool, to service those calls and you know medics can uh, 
are barely keeping their head above water now and and burning out in droves. So, you know, again, this, this, and I've said this for decades, Libby, um, and, you know, you know, there's times where you like to be able to pe- say to people, I told you so, and you relish that. Well, and then there's times where you, you don't relish saying that. Well, this is more the latter because I've been saying this for decades. You know, okay, Mike, had- but let's talk about this program. Now, my understanding is that, you know, a lot of 911 ambulance calls mm-hmm. are because people cannot get access to other parts of the system. And you get a paramedic, and if they stabilize people at home or they can treat them at home, isn't that a good thing? That is a good thing. We're actually doing that now. I mean... The study mentions, uh, or I believe the minister mentioned epileptics and diabetics. We actually do that now. I mean, we've been doing that for quite a few years. We can treat them on scene, and if they don't want to go to the hospital, we're quite comfortable usually with leaving them on scene because we stabilize their blood sugar. If they're an epileptic, they have a seizure. They don't want to go to the hospital. Once we make sure they're okay, they usually don't want to go to the hospital because they know they have a seizure disorder, and the hospital really isn't going to do anything for them. So... You know, that's nothing new. We've been doing that for, you know, years and years. No, I'm at, like I said, I'm actually supportive of it, but it doesn't do anything to alleviate the amount of calls that paramedics are actually doing. And paramedics cannot handle the call volume as it is. And again, we're back to staffing. But for what this may do to help alleviate pressures on the hospital ERs, yes, you know, I would agree. But you still need the paramedics. I mean, we recently, Libby, took expanded a bit of an expansion on our community paramedicine program, but you know that meant which I which again I'm entirely supportive of, but that took paramedics off the road to service 911 calls. By doing community paramedicine for the 911 calls has been a very, very, very small portion of calls. Let me ask you this, because one of the things that I gather was a big, huge bottleneck for paramedics that it seems that this program might alleviate somewhat, and that is if when a paramedic takes someone to an ER, they have to wait with them until a nurse sees them. And my understanding is that this takes the pressure off that, because if they're sitting there for hours, that takes them off the road as well. I agree. It very may well help alleviate some of the pressures on that's called offload delay, where, you know, we don't have a bed for uh, to transfer our patient to and get back out on the road. But now, there's been a lot of emphasis put on that lately, that that's a real problem in the system. And it's it's really, for some jurisdictions, it sounds like it is, like Ottawa sounds quite bad. And I'm not sure why they're worse than Toronto. That may be a case of they have less hospitals to go to and maybe even less paramedics. But Toronto is not all that bad for offload delay. It's We average about a 45-minute wait right now, which is, is down from decades, uh, not decades, but years ago, we could be in there for you know, for an entire shift waiting on a bed. So, you know, in that respect, offload delay has actually improved. Paramedic Mike Merriman, EMS Chair for QP Local 416. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, an anti-racism project that was anything but. It loses its federal funding. We will discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
Members of Jewish groups and others are relieved that the Trudeau liberals are cutting funding to a so-called anti-racism project led by a senior consultant who has a long history of posting reprehensible and violent anti-Semitic tweets. Staff at the Federal Heritage Department gave more than $133,000 to this group named the Community Media Advocacy Center last year to build an anti-racism strategy for the broadcasting sector. On Monday, Federal Diversity Minister Ahmed Hussein released a statement saying funding has been cut and their project has been suspended due to the reprehensible and vile comments made by Laith Marouf. Hussein also demanded to know how the organization hired Marouf, though it turns out Marouf and his wife make up the organization, which is headquartered in their home. On Tuesday, Libby spoke with a number of stakeholders. Marvin Rotrand, the National Director of B'nai B'rith Canada's League for Human Rights. Shimon Koffler-Fogel, President and CEO of the Centre for Israel and Jewish Affairs. And Liberal MP Anthony Housefather, who's had the courage to criticize his own government. I would note that I'm certainly not the only one that, that, first of all, I don't know that I'm taking on the government. What I'm saying is that this situation was totally unacceptable, and there needs to be accountability. Um, and we all need to work together to make sure that we never have a situation where a company uh, like this, uh, a nonprofit like this, gets government funding associated with a notorious anti-Semite. And, uh, and he's not only an anti-Semite, he's made negative comments about other groups as well, such as Francophones and Americans and, you know, and, and, and God knows what. So we need to have a process in place to make sure this never happens again. And we can't simply point the finger at the organization. The department has to accept accountability for having agreed to this grant and for not having monitored it properly. So, you know, that, that, that's what I'm saying. And I, I can only tell you, Libby, that uh, a number of my colleagues, including Yara Sachs, uh, you know, Julie DeBruzen have been working with me on this and, and have been uh, very forceful and very helpful in, uh, in getting us to where the contract is ended and, you know, and, and, and the requirement for accountability being put in place. Shimon Koffler-Fogel, uh, I think the government wants to think, okay, case closed, nothing to see here, uh, it's over. Yeah, I, I don't share that interpretation of events. Um, I think that we can divide this into two in, into two questions. One is, how did this happen? And we can have a discussion about that. But the other question at the moment, the one that's more important, is what does the government do going forward? And I think in that respect, Ahmed Hussein, who's uh, the minister responsible, has been pretty clear about how he views Mr. Uh, Marouf's posts and tweets and his general attitude that's been on display for more than 20 years. And he has expressed uh, not just condemnation of that, but I think genuine resolve to understand what mistakes allowed it. And more importantly, what does the government have to put into place at Heritage Canada in order to ensure proper um, vetting, that due diligence is undertaken in an effective way, and that this kind of thing never happens again. So those are his words. We're going to have to evaluate and monitor whether uh, they translate into meaningful deeds. But I don't think the government is running away from the problem. Marvin Rotrand, do you agree? 
actually, I share Shimon's uh, analysis, but well, clearly someone at Heritage Canada was not doing their job. This contract should never have been awarded in the first place. And despite the fact that the minister did denounce some roof as repugnant and he did cut the contract, Somebody should have caught this somewhere along the way. The vetting process is inadequate. Look, Maruf has a very long history as a consultant with CMAC, and nobody seems to take into account his flagrant anti-Semitic and racist posts. You yourself said he aims at Jews, at Israel, at French Canadians, but there's a lot more vile stuff. There's anti-black stuff. Uh, basically, he tweeted he was unhappy so few Americans were killed in Vietnam. He considers Canada to be a racist, colonialist venture, and somehow... He managed to get through the scrutiny process, and he's the last guy you want to be teaching anti-racism. But what we're going to recommend to the government of Canada is that the vetting process, including for grants, has to apply the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of uh, anti-Semitism. Now, the government committed to that last year at the International Forum in Malmo. And just recently, Libby, and I'm just going to read you one paragraph, the House Standing Committee on Public Safety and National Security adopted the following, that the government of Canada thoroughly reject the demonization and delegitimization of the state of Israel and condemn all attempts by Canadian organizations, groups, or individuals, including university campus associations, to promote these views both at home and abroad. Now, that should have been something that was in the mind of Heritage Canada, and that's got to be something that's in the mind of Heritage Canada. Marvin Rotrand, National Director of B'nai B'rith Canada's League for Human Rights. Shimon Koffler-Fogel, President and CEO of the Centre for Israel and Jewish Affairs. And Liberal MP Anthony Housefather. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fraudsters seem to be busier than ever, as many of us experience attempted scams more than usual. The latest is a text claiming that a speed camera has caught you speeding and that you'd better pay a ticket by clicking a link. The text looks legit, and it shows a ticket number at the top. On Wednesday, Libby was joined by two experts to discuss this latest scam. Carmi Levy is a technology analyst and journalist based in London, Ontario. And Michael Ferreira is with the Toronto Police Services Financial Crimes Unit. I came upon this, uh, I think, around August 17. And it's a quite simple looking one. It looks almost harmless just the way it comes in as a text message. So someone receiving it might, you know, might not think twice and believe that it's real. But, you know, with that, you just got to take a second and, and look at it a little bit more deeply, and then you can see some things that stand out, which will help you not click on it. Okay, so what are those things? First, when you see it, it's a text message. The City of Toronto, and I've gone to their website, they don't send text messages for tickets. Secondly, there's a link, and the link was a bit.ly link, which is a uh, service. It's like a URL shortening service. It creates a link, and you it's shorter than what it appears to be, so it kind of hides what it's supposed to be. And if you click on that, it'll take you to a page that asks you for your personal information. Just don't click on the link, and that'll save you that trouble. And will it get personal information if you just click on the link and then don't give any further information? Quite frankly, I can't speak to that particular one specifically. I did receive a picture of where it takes you, and you have to input the information yourself. So it's they're fishing for information. In this particular case, they're asking you for your first name, your last name, address, the city, the postal code, the phone number, your date of birth, 
all real personal information. Carmi, what's your take on this particular scam? Well, I think Detective Constable Ferrer is absolutely right. It, it does look harmless when you first look at it, but it's one of those things where if you slow down and really look at the details, you start to notice things that look a little bit off. Like, for example, there's, you know, at a couple of places there are errors, you know, sort of the, the number sign sort of is bumped right up against the, the text. There's no space. They use KM, all uppercase, not KN, KNH, the, the kind of language that you wouldn't see from someone who really knows what they're doing. It's better than it used to be, but still not quite 100%, and it stands out. You know, and the thing is, in this case, it looks like it leads, if you click the link, which of course you never should, but if you do, they're asking for information. In some cases, that payload could be different. We just don't know. But because it's a text message, we think it looks legit. We're, we're almost inclined to say, yeah, no worries. You know, like, I, I don't want to be on the wrong side of the cops. Let me, let me follow this home. But because we don't, we don't assign that cynicism to these messages, it comes, it seems to be coming from a legitimate source. In this case, the police force. It could be a bank. It could be a government agency. It could be our insurance company. Maybe someone claiming to be our employer. We don't look closely enough to realize that they would never contact us in that way in the first place. There's something very off here. And so, you know, because we don't have that natural cynicism, because we're more inclined to answer things, we are at increased risk of falling victim into it, we really need to start stepping back. Whenever we do get a message that looks like this, instead of that natural inclination to respond, our initial inclination should be cynicism. And if we really want to make sure, like, is this really the TPS? Is you know, the police really reaching out to me? Look them up online. Don't click the link. Call them and go, hey, I just got this text message. Is this something I should be worried about? And of course, they'll tell you, we never sent that out. Case closed. So, first thing you must do when you get a message like this is never click on that link. Always get out of that sort of conversational loop and check manually, check directly with the individual, check directly with the organization. And let's stop thinking that we have to answer every single message, even if it looks legit, even if it feels urgent, if we feel like we're going to get into trouble. That's the psychology, the game that they're playing with us. And we need to sort of back ourselves away from that. Slow things down and you'll realize something about this doesn't add up. I should not follow through. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist in London, Ontario, and Michael Ferreira with the Toronto Police Services Financial Crimes Unit. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Sita in Mississauga phoned to alert us about a mobile phone scam. To make others aware of phone scam, a text message came through to my husband's phone and from our friend's phone. And it says, well, hi, and I mentioned my husband's name. 
are you busy? I need a favor. Call, uh, text me back. It's urgent. So we're about to go out. So I said to my husband, phone next day. And we did phone the next day, only to find out that a lot of his family and friends were calling him concerning the same message sent out. Nick in Toronto called about the plan for paramedics to find treatment or provide treatment outside of hospital emergency rooms and fight back's conversation with Mike Merriman, who is a union representative for paramedics. I think the gentleman that you just spoke to has addressed two separate issues here, and he spent quite a bit of time talking about the the number of paramedics we have, and I don't think that's the issue at, at hand, not for this conversation anyway. You're talking about paramedics treating people on site, which I think is a great idea. I think in the past, all paramedics that were called had to take a person to the hospital to be treated. I think they had to unless the person said they didn't want to go. Well, yes, that's true. Jerry in Scarborough also called on this topic. I'm listening to what's going on, and I agree with the paramedics should be able to do that. But one frightening thought that comes to my mind, we had a friend's daughter who had a heart condition. She was 21. She was at the cardiologist in the early afternoon, totally examined everything. He said she was fine. Her parents took her out for dinner and went to the theater to see a movie. And right there in the the lobby, she had a heart attack and she died in the theater lobby. Oh, my God. How awful. What's to prevent something like that happening with a paramedic? What protection do they have against liable? Should they treat somebody, leave, and that person succumb after they've gone? And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Gord in Sarnia, who phoned about a firsthand experience with a hospitalized elderly loved one. We have a family member in hospital, and it was a very frustrating experience in that the hospital was exceedingly aggressive about saying, you know, this person has to leave, and there was there's no funding. Like, I don't know if people realize that, but unless you're in dire straits and have no income and no assets, when you leave the hospital and go into any uh, assisted living or long-term care facility, you're expected to pay 100% of the bill. And in this con- in this situation, that wasn't an option for our family member because if they went into an assisted living or long-term care facility and were footing the bill, they would lose their house. And the hospital's attitude was, oh, well, too bad. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fightback. The best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown. Justin Eacock and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.